Welcome back to the Dog and Duck Show. We are back after an unexpected hiatus, but it is good to be back. My name is Warren. I am the dog. With me, as always, is my co-host, Mark. He is the duck. Today, we're going to be taking a too early look at the 2023 football season for the Washington Huskies and the Oregon Ducks. Mark, how are you doing, my friend? Warren, it's been too long. I've, I've missed you. I'm, I'm doing great just to be able to uh, to have some time with you here. You know, you know, I've I've missed our special times together, and um, I think uh, I think we're gonna have a good time tonight. So let's dive right in. And uh, Mark, in our pre-show dialogue, you said, "Oh, I guess I better talk about something." So let's get let's get right into this. Let's talk about the Treshawn Holden story, the uh, wide receiver who was booted off the team only to be reinstated. Uh, walk us through what happened and your take on this whole saga. Well, yeah, so uh, I guess the I'm guessing most people uh, listening to the pod at least at least most husky fans have a read on this situation. <laughs> the duck fans aren't up to speed, but my experience born is that the duck is that husky fans are much more well informed about drama on the Oregon football team. <laughs> than the duck fans awesome. are, but but for the benefit of the duck fans, uh, Treshawn Holden is a wide receiver transferred in from Alabama. Yeah. Uh, just at the beginning of this calendar year. So has yet to even like play in a practice uh, for the Oregon football team. Uh, he was involved in some sort of altercation. Uh, seems to be outside of his apartment. Uh, there was, uh, I believe his girlfriend was involved. I believe a neighbor was involved. It seems like a firearm was involved. And he was, uh, so the initial report was he was arrested by, uh, I don't know whether it was by the Lane County Sheriff or the Eugene Police, I, I can't remember which, but anyway, he was arrested, booked in the Lane County Jail, uh, and arrested for unlawful use of a firearm. And essentially, at simultaneous with that was news that he had been kicked off the football team and mm -hmm. that Dan Lane had a, had a zero tolerance policy for any sort of domestic violence or anything like that and uh and and that seemingly was just kind of the end of the story it was a very very quick abrupt decision and i think most people were kind of like okay great um let's move on and then it seemed like it it took a couple days uh but holden was released and charges were not filed and then a couple days later uh, there were some reports that came out uh, from people inside of the, the Lane County criminal justice system who basically said after looking at the body camera footage from the police that Treshawn Holden was unlawfully arrested, essentially, that, that mm. he was playing more the role of a peacemaker in the midst of a situation uh, that seemingly could have gotten out of control. Mm -hmm. He was kind of the one who acted with, with good reason and, and de-escalated mm -hmm. the conflict. And so those reports kind of started circulating. 
and then one kind of wondered, well, what does this this mean? And he, uh, Treshawn Holden, sent out a single tweet that just said, "Glad the truth is finally out," or so, something mm. to that effect. So it seemed like he was feeling like uh, vindicated. Like, yeah, yeah, that uh, that his reputation was being besmirched for something that that wasn't totally deserved. Anyway, long story short, uh, on on a Friday afternoon, kind of the Friday news dump time, it you see this little announcement that comes through that Treshawn Holden had been reinstated to the program. Mm -hmm. And essentially, you know, Dan Lanning had a, a statement saying that, you know, it's not that their standards have changed or anything, but that he is a person that if he's given more information and it's going to force him to reevaluate his perspective, then, you know, he's not above doing that. It kind of reminded me, Warren, of very early in Chip Kelly's tenure. If you remember the LeGarrette Blunt incident where he, punched a Boise State player after the game. Yeah. Uh, first game of the year, Chip Kelly immediately kicked him off the team. And then uh, Chip had some counsel from some other mentors like Tony Dungy, who said, hey, you know, uh, I understand why you did that, but maybe removing him from this team isn't actually in his best interest and doesn't actually like serve the the young man. And that mm -hmm. maybe giving him some sort of a supportive environment to work through some of his issues is better. This is obviously not totally the same right? as, you know, throwing a punch on national television, but it does seem like uh, there was kind of a rush to judgment. And then once more information came in, it compelled coach Lanning and, and the university to, to rethink some things. Yeah. Maybe yeah. And I think the, you know, the, the Husky play by play, and of course, if the the tables were turned, it would be the exact same thing from from Oregon Nation. But the Husky play by play was, oh look, Treshawn Holden, he's a thug, you know, because that's all that Oregon recruits is thugs. And then it was, oh look, Dan Lanning is, you know, uh, he's prosecuting a kid before he even has the opportunity to prove himself innocent. You know, who wants to? Who wants to have a coach that will give up on you before they even give you a chance? And now that he's been reinstated, it's just kind of like, eh, okay, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the, the opportunity to kick a duck while he's down was was taken, but eventually it became much ado about nothing. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things, you know, it's um it's it's kind of unsettling because I don't know if you've been following the story involving the Alabama basketball team. This, of course, is the mm. school that Sean Holden came from. Mm. Uh, Alabama basketball team has been ranked number one in the country for a portion of this year. Uh, very good basketball team. And they actually had a player on their team who has been um, arrested for murder of a young woman, a mother of a young child um, in some sort of dispute where he fired into a car and ended up killing this woman, allegedly. Uh, and now that it's come, and he was immediately dismissed from the basketball team, but now it's come out that a couple of his teammates were there. It seems like he fired the gun that belonged to one of his teammates and that another one of his teammates was responsible for bringing the gun to the location where this, this terrible crime was committed. And it's just, it's totally put that entire season under a cloud of just, yeah. you know. And so there's a sense in which you can look at that and look at how the Alabama basketball team seems to not really want to punish these other two guys who may have mm -hmm. been 
kind of accessories to a murder if you believe mm -hmm. all the reports. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and so that is just so stomach turning where it just seems like, come on, where is where is the standard here? Yeah. And yet at the same time, you do have this incident where it seems like, you know, the official statement from law enforcement now is that like he was unfairly arrested, that he never should have been arrested. And of course, we've had all of these, you know, documented incidents in our country in recent years mm -hmm. of of, you know, young black men taken into custody and and all mm -hmm. of the complications around that. And so it gets complicated real quick and, and it's not hard to kind of formulate an opinion on either side of this and kind of decide this was right or this was wrong and just kind of, you know, draw a line in the sand and, and think that you kind of know what should or shouldn't have happened or what the right discipline is or isn't. Yeah. Uh, but I think the truth is, is, I mean, none of us, none of us really know. And I think uh, it would seem to be that Treshawn Holden is going to be on a short leash regardless, even if he was unfairly, hmm. you know, arrested that, um, you know, it's not going to take much for him to lose any sort of whatever standing he has regained. And hmm. I think uh, for Lanning, I think the, the, both the swiftness of action and, and the ability to rethink, I think, uh, I think they both speak well of of the type of leader that he's going to be of this program. I don't think he's going to be tolerant of you know that that type of of behavior that that some coaches might be tolerant of, but at the same time it does it does seem like he is he's going to also try to act with some some wisdom and and sensitivity around these things. And that's that's not an easy line to to toe. No, it's not. And every coach, no matter how high quality or loosey goosey is, is going to have to deal with some of those issues. I mean, the Huskies had Siler Miles and, you know, uh, we've had our our issues over the years, but, um, you know, Marcus Peters getting kicked off the team. But I think the big thing is, is he creating a, a culture and a standard that says, hey, we value, we respect women, we we respect authority, those type of things. And, you know, uh, misjudge on a, a scenario like this is not a, you know, it's not a, a damning crime in my opinion. But let's keep going with any other duck news that is worth uh, flushing out. Yeah, I think the one piece that since we haven't recorded in a while, I don't think we've had a chance to touch on uh... – Oregon officially announcing a new offensive line coach, you know, uh, Adrian Clem, who was a brilliant offensive line coach this past year for Oregon. We were so thrilled with the job that he did on the offensive line. He uh, returned to the NFL to go be the offensive line coach for the New England Patriots. Of course, Oregon hired him away from the Pittsburgh Steelers. So not a real surprise mm -hmm. that after a year of really excelling at the college game, he would look to, to get a position in the NFL. I think he has some sort of um, like associate head coach title or, or something like that. He interviewed actually as the offensive coordinator for the Patriots. Then they ended up hiring him on the offensive line, but I think he has some responsibilities that supersede that as well. So a, obviously a great career move for mm -hmm. him. You can't, you can't begrudge anyone uh, taking a job like that. And so Oregon uh, moved quickly and hired, uh, I, I may mispronounce this name, but I be believe it's Alik Terry. And 
they hired him away from the Minnesota Vikings, where he was actually helping to coach the defensive line this past season. But ultimately, he has experience coaching the offensive line. He was a graduate assistant for uh, the University of Oregon when Panay Sewell was playing there. Uh, Panay Sewell speaks very, very highly of him, as do several other former Oregon linemen who are now mm -hmm. in the NFL. I mean, I mean, they had quotes from four or five different Ducks who are in the NFL now who basically said, this is a home run hire to bring this guy back to Oregon. Um, and he has experience uh, coaching both on the offensive and the defensive line. He was Hawaii's offensive line coach for a season, obviously has some NFL experience with the Minnesota Vikings. So uh, seems seems to be a good hire just in terms of, you know, the 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 quick and enthusiastic response of, of some former Duck linemen, but, um, but not as much on the resume as Adrian Clem had, you know, coming directly from the Pittsburgh Steelers. So how is his recruiting? Yeah. I mean, I think that that remains to be seen, you know, he's only, uh, I mean, his only experience in college coaching was as he coached one year at, at his alma mater Wake Forest, right after he graduated, then he was a graduate assistant at Oregon, uh, um, I believe in the Mario Cristobal era, and then one year as Hawaii's offensive line coach before, uh, you know, moving up to the Minnesota Vikings. So he he doesn't have a, a lot of experience. He's a pretty young coach to begin with um, and, and doesn't necessarily have a lot of experience, but he did spend two years under Mario Cristobal who recruited the offensive line really extensively and effectively. Uh, that's probably... Mario Cristobal's most lasting legacy is that this great offensive line that Oregon had this past mm -hmm. year are all guys yeah. that came under him. So one would think that he's filed a few things away, you know, in terms of what it takes to to be a good recruiter. And I think just hearing how excited guys like Panay Sewell and Shane Lemieux and some of these other former Oregon offensive linemen were that he was coming back speaks to something of the relationship building that he's mm -hmm capable of and i would think that would serve him well on the recruiting trail that's good insight good insight it, you know i i just think it's so interesting the way that different coaches and coaching programs kind of construct their staff you know some seem to put a lot of emphasis on youth a lot of emphasis on recruiting others you know it's really about development it's about coaching and you know who who can you know be the best game you know caller game manager that kind of thing and i think you've got to have that successful mix of all those on the team or, or you're just not going to be able to 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 build the roster that you need so i'm always fascinated especially when a younger coach surrounds himself with a lot of other young coaches yeah. uh you know i you know, I think just from a purely leadership standpoint, there's some interesting things to draw from that. But, um, you know, we'll see how things play out. I, you know, I think the thing about Oregon is it feels like in many ways it can kind of recruit itself. Um, so I would rather have if I'm if I'm an Oregon fan like you, I would rather have my offensive line coach be someone that's really good at at developing players and getting them like in the best formations to be able to succeed on the field and then trust that Dan Lanning and some of the 
the higher echelon recruiters can get me the talent that I need. So that it's it's interesting that you bring that up because this just came across the wire today is that Oregon was adding two more guys to the coaching staff. And one of them is a guy named Mike Cavanaugh, who they had hired as an assistant offensive line coach. So he will work with Ilyk Terry and he has been an offensive line coach of some kind for 30 years. Uh, so that's exactly the type of, of hire that you're talking about yeah. is, um, you know, uh, a guy uh, recently was the offensive line coach at, at Syracuse, it looks like, and, you know, has, has just a lot of experience was Oregon state's offensive line coach for about 10 years during the Mike Riley era. Mm. So that's the kind of, I think, hire that you're talking about. And that just, that just happened. I mean, that was just announced today. Oh, wow. So it does seem like there's a movement kind of in both directions of mm. you've got this young, enthusiastic guy who seems to be really great at the relational piece. He's got some NFL experience. He's obviously got some experience with the school and then let's pair him up with the guy that just understands the technical aspects of how to, how to teach this stuff and, yeah. uh, and have them work together. So my, my hope is that, that that proves to be kind of the perfect mix. Well, speaking of coaches stories, you know, thinking about dog news, the big story that came out a few weeks ago, and this is our first recording since then was the courting of Ryan Grubb by Nick Saban and Alabama and it just kind of came out of nowhere all of a sudden rumors were flurrying about that Ryan Grubb was flying out uh, to Tuscaloosa to meet with Nick Saban and his staff and he was being uh, offered the opportunity to be Nick Saban's next offensive coordinator and Grubb has been pretty open that his ultimate goal is to be a high-level head coach at a, a major program and there's certainly a strong track record of offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators at Alabama yeah. getting some pretty strong job opportunities. Uh, but the the story goes that uh, Ryan Grubb told Kalen DeBoer and Jen Cohen, trust me, they gave him permission. He went, he came back, and he declined the opportunity. He's staying at the University of Washington. And uh, he he talked about this with uh, Softy uh, on the radio that, you know, really he felt like with the return of Michael Penix Jr., Jalen McMillan, Roma Dunze, Troy Fautano, um, you know, just Devin Culp, so many key offensive players. He just felt like that it would, the, the right thing for him to do was to continue to ride with this group. And so you think about going back now to like early December when Michael Penix made that announcement that he was coming back and how yeah. groundbreaking that was. But you think about all the dominoes that have fallen since then. Yeah. And it has totally like that one decision has totally remade all of the expectations heading into 2023 uh, because of Penix's decision to come back. And uh, he didn't even tell his coach until he made the announcement publicly. So uh, big news. Speaking of uh, quarterbacks, the Huskies did finally sign their 2023 quarterback in uh, perhaps uh, a roundabout fashion, Mark. 
they had already signed a 2024 quarterback, EJ Kamenong, here a local kid. Um, and then they signed another 2024 quarterback, four-star, six foot six, 210-pound quarterback, Austin Mack from Folsom uh, out in California. And uh, Mark, he has since committed, um, he has reclassified as a 2023 quarterback, which means that he'll be joining the team in the fall as a newly turned 17-year-old um, getting ready to play major college football with, you know, kids five, six, seven years older than him uh, with these uh, these COVID delays. So um, the Huskies got their, they got their quarterback for 23. Yeah. Um, certainly I would not anticipate he will see the field at all this year, but he may be counted on to be the quarterback in the future in the post Michael Penix era. So exciting news for that. Um, want to give a quick shout out to the Husky, uh, men's track team. Uh, Mark, they did something pretty remarkable. They had eight young men who ran sub four minute miles. And they've done that now in two separate events, which I believe is a record. And it puts them as the number one, uh, you know, group in, in the nation, which is, uh, you know, it, it's kind of nice to see a little track success when you live up the street from, from the university of Oregon. Yeah. I mean, my, my goodness, that, uh, that is no small feat to, uh, to do that when you're in the same conferences, uh, as a team from track town, but that's, that's incredible. Eight guys with a sub four minute mile. That's, that's wild. All right. So Mark, be honest. What's the fastest mile you've ever run? Uh, I want to say I did. Um, I want to say I did a little under six minutes when I was in senior in high school. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that I think my best time was just under six minutes as well. Yeah. So. I mean, I was in, uh, this might surprise you, but I was in really good shape my senior year of high school. <laughs> no, I, I believe you. I believe you. You're a, you're a high school football player. So that's impressive, though. A guy, uh, you know, for a, for an offensive lineman to run a sub six mile. You know, pretty good. how I remember that is we had this week-long conditioning camp that we would always do right before daily double yeah. start. And you're divided up into teams where, you know, you've got a couple freshmen, a couple sophomores, a couple juniors, a couple seniors on each team, and they and you're competing for points. And you accrue points based on your position. So, like, for a lineman to get the maximum points, they had to run the mile, I believe, in six and a half minutes. Mm. And for, like, a skill position player to get maximum points, they had to run it in six minutes. Yeah. Remember, I finished in like 555 or something like that. And I was stoked because I got full points for the skill position, even though I was I was only an offensive lineman. Mm -hmm. So uh, that stuck with me. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Now, what would you guess your time would be in a mile right now? If I'm if I'm driving or, or running. <laughs> <laughs> if you're being dragged behind a car. Oh my goodness. No, of yeah. course running. Yeah, gosh. I shudder to even think. I cannot remember the last time I would have uh run that. For, well, I no, I've gone on some jogs with my wife, so I guess I'm sure I've covered a mile in those, but uh 
I've certainly never timed myself. That that would uh, that would not be a pretty picture. Have you timed yourself in a mile recently? You you do more running than I do. Yeah, I think I I think I'd be able to get under you know seven minutes and fifteen seconds. That that yeah. seems pretty reasonable. But um, That's impressive. yeah, yeah. make that a goal, and we should do weekly weekly progress. <laughs> we should. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. All right, so. Today, hey, can I say something about your Ryan Grubb news? Uh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to say this is that, uh, first of all, if you've seen the way that Nick Saban treats his offensive coordinators, there are some clips going around of you know him just chewing out Lane Kiffin or oh, yeah. Steve or some of the you know. So, like, first of all, I think it was just a good mental health move for Ryan Grubb, uh, to stay in, in Seattle. Obviously, he's got all this talent coming back too. But I do think I think it's a credit to Kalen DeBoer, and I think similarly, uh, you know, Notre Dame made a real strong run at Utah's offensive coordinator Andy Ludwig. Mm. He was seen at a at a Notre Dame hockey game, sitting next to Marcus Freeman, Notre Dame's head coach, and everybody kind of thought he was going to become the next offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. He ends up coming back to Utah, you know, to keep working with Kyle Whittingham where he's had a lot of success. And I think that's a huge credit to both of those guys, Kyle Whittingham and Kalen DeBoer, that if, if your guys are being courted for similar positions at Alabama and Notre Dame, and they're wanting to, to stay and work with you, I think that that must mean that you're a pretty good boss and that you're, you're doing things the right way. So a credit to both those guys. No, I agree. And I think, you know, clearly the money was not the draw for that position. I mean, Ryan Grubb is the highest paid offensive coordinator in the Pac-12 now. Um, so he's getting paid really well. And if he had left to go to Alabama, it would not have been for the money. It would not have been for the work-life experience it would have totally been to be able to say, I spent a year working with Nick Saban. I won a national championship, and now I'm going to get my head coaching ticket to wherever I want to go. And yeah, well, that's that's the only reason why Lane Kiffin did it. It's the only reason why Steve Sarkeesian did it. You, it well, Bill O'Brien was the most recent Bill one. Bill O'Brien, you put up with hell so that you can get the job that you really want. What all three of those guys have in common that Ryan Grubb does not have in common is is they all were carrying a little bit of scandal with them, you know, and they all they all had been fired from previous jobs. There was a, kind of some lingering concern mm -hmm. about those guys, and I think Saban kind of smartly said, "Well, hey, these guys still know what they're doing. I'm going to bring them in and and you know get something out of them," and and it worked in all in all all of those cases. But I think Ryan Grubb isn't kind of coming from the same place of desperation that, that yeah. Steve Sarkeesian and, and yeah. Elaine King are coming from where it's like, I've, I've got to, I've got to take this, this shot and it's going to be hell working for this guy, mm -hmm. but I'm, you know, I'm going to learn a lot. And, and if it goes well, I'm going to have my pick of, of jobs. So I think Ryan Grubb had a little, frankly, has a little more leverage than, than Lane Kiffin or Steve Sarkeesian had at that point. Yeah, yeah, it would be fun to have like a male version of the Devil Wears Prada. It's the Devil Wears Crimson, and uh, play that whole thing out. But 
Well, hey, let's talk a, a little bit about the uh, 2023 season. The Huskies are actually beginning spring football next week, um, which is just crazy to me. But uh, January and February have kind of just gone by in a blink. So here we are. We're, we're rolling into March. And uh, the Huskies are getting things going a little bit early. Then they're going to take a little break. And then they're going to go back to spring practice. And they've got their spring game scheduled for Saturday, April 22nd. Uh, by the way, Mark, another little note is that this is going to be, according to Kalen DeBoer, a legitimate spring game, not a preview, not a scrimmage, okay. but a, a spring game, which I I will be very fascinated to see if that actually does come to fruition, because as of right now, we've only got two quarterbacks who are playing in the spring, Michael Penix Jr., Dylan Morris, Sam Heward, of course, is gone. Austin Mack isn't here yet. Uh, they didn't recruit anybody in last year's class. So if either one of those guys gets an injury or tweaked at all, I, I don't know how they're even going to make that work. But yeah. uh, but that's that's the plan right now. So uh, let's talk a little bit about this upcoming season. A lot of other agencies and media outlets have, have done their too early or too soon predictions. We're not going to do a game by game for for both teams this season, but let's just talk about some major storylines, some yep. major things that we're looking forward to. Uh, both of these teams are coming into twenty three, I would say, with sky high expectations, um, with a lot of hopes that this could be a memorable and you know certainly uh, you know successful season. Of course, the Huskies coming off of a, a surprising. Uh, amazing 11 and two turnaround. Um, and, and now they've got all of these offensive weapons coming back. Oregon finishes with 10 wins on the season and Dan Lanning's first season and have had one of the most incredible recruiting classes and transfer portal classes in recent history. So again, lots of optimism for both programs. So let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, upcoming season, Mark. As you look at the 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 Ducks' season ahead, what do you kind of identify as some of the biggest challenges that this uh, program is going to face? Well, I I think uh, one challenge does have to do on on the offensive line. You know, we talked about losing Adrian Clem as an offensive line coach. They also lost four starters uh, from that great offensive line of a year ago. They've brought in a couple transfers that would seem to be immediate starting quality type players. Uh, but they're also going to have to have some guys, you know, like Josh Connerly would be a good example of guys that are going to have to step up and, and play a much bigger role. And so that's, that's kind of an immediate challenge that I see just in terms of like, what's the position group where it seems like there's the biggest hole. Um, I think, I think it's kind of a more like of a, a um, existential challenge or, or whatever you want to call it is Oregon's schedule is so backloaded, you know, every, every kind of um, every one of their kind of chief competitors in the PAC 12, they play Washington in the middle of October. They play Utah at the end of October. They play USC and the Beavers in, in November. Like those are the games that they're going to kind of have the most riding on mm -hmm. and they don't play any of them until after you know, the halfway point in the season, basically. 
um, or I think I think Washington is their sixth game of the season, so right at the halfway point. And sometimes with a schedule like that, you can see a team that has a little bit of complacency, you know, that that there's just and, and that shouldn't be an issue for Oregon with the way last season ended. There should be plenty of of things to motivate them and, and all kinds of that. But like sometimes when the schedule sets up and you can kind of pencil in, that's a win, that's a win, that's a win, that's a win. Uh, that doesn't necessarily help a team kind of maintain their whole focus. And, uh, and so that, that I see as, as, as a potential challenge, you know, what, what kind of energy do they, um, do they have in those first few weeks of the season when they're playing Portland state and they're, they're playing Hawaii. You know, the great thing about last year's schedule is they had to play Georgia right off the bat. They got completely overwhelmed in that game. And then they had to turn around and play a really good BYU team two weeks later. And then they had to go on the road to Pullman. And it was like within the first month of the season, it felt like we had to learn a lot about where the ducks were. I don't think we're going to know that much about Oregon really until until they play Washington, unless we learn some things that aren't very good about them, you know, but I don't think they can, I don't think they can answer too many questions in the positive um, really until the halfway point of their season. What, what would you say uh, likewise for, uh, for, for Washington, what, what do you see as the biggest challenges for them? I think you, really brought up some great points that are similar for the Huskies. Certainly the back half of the schedule is, is, is a monster. They run into a, a three game uh, series where they play USC on the road, uh, Utah at home, and then Oregon state on the road as well. Uh, and then finish things up at home against Washington state. Um, so, you know, I think, this the schedule that we have it it feels like the kind of schedule that could get us into the final four or into the the into the playoffs uh because there there's enough there that if the huskies can go through with one loss or less um i think it creates a strong enough resume um you know of course boise state is no pushover, but uh, they're certainly a team that's respected, uh, even nationally. Uh, Michigan State on the road, that will you know garner some respect and some attention, especially coming off of last year's home-and-home uh, home series with them. And then, of course, the big tell-the-truth game for, for both programs is going to be when Washington and Oregon meet at the University of Washington in the middle of the season. Yeah. And I'm I'm actually, I'm really, really glad that this game is falling where it is in the schedule because I feel like if it were too early, then you know there was the, there would be the potential that one team has not quite started firing on all cylinders. If it were too late, you could run into like, you know, one team is decimated with injuries and they're not you know they're not playing the way that they they once were but i think for these two teams to run into each other right in the middle of the season um that's going to be a major challenge for washington yeah. um and and i there's no part of me that thinks that because they won last year in Otson 
and because they're playing at home this year that they're going to win that game. It, it's yeah. going it's going to take them playing their very best football in order to get past Oregon this year. Um, so great schedule. Feel really good about it. We've got seven home games, five away games, uh, but a couple of those away games are are you know are are tough ones. So definitely uh, a lot of challenges ahead for this uh, this upcoming season. So let's talk about the opportunities. Like you know, I think we all kind of have an idea of somewhere in the window of eight to. 10 or 11 wins feels like a reasonable expectation. Of course, we we both would love to see our teams make the playoffs. So we'll talk about best case scenarios now. But what are some opportunities for this upcoming season that you're you're looking forward to or that you're hopeful about? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I find my, I'm looking at the Husky schedule, not at the Duck schedule, trying to find opportunities of joy on the Husky schedule, but I don't think that's the question you're asking me. Um, <laughs> opportunities is, yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think uh, the best way that I could describe it is um, with the way Oregon lost to Washington and to Oregon State, the way Oregon lost to their two rivals had both of those rivals just kind of cheering about ruining the Ducks season and all that stuff and having to listen to that now for the rest of the year. I think the opportunity is there to return the favor. And I think that's what has to really motivate these guys is that it's like, I think there is a really good chance the Huskies are going to be 5-0 and when the Ducks roll into Seattle and, and a good chance the, the Ducks are 5-0 and as well. You know, I... I think they at least both teams should be favored through the first five games of their season. Uh, so that right there is an, it, that's an opportunity to kind of repay some of last year's mm -hmm. loss by playing a highly ranked Washington team with some really high expectations and, and dealing a severe blow. Uh, when they get the Beavers, they get them uh, in the very last game of the season, like always. Uh, and if this Beaver team is as good as they think they are, I have doubts about whether the Beavers are going to be as good as they think they will be. But if this Beaver team has the kind of season that they're expecting, yeah. they, they might come into that that last game of the season with some sort of you know Pac-12 title hopes still in play if they can win if they can win that game or something like that, and and there could be an opportunity for the Ducks to to kind of end that dream as well. So I think. I think really the opportunity is the opportunity to serve up some revenge, you yeah. know, the rivals is that's, that's how you have to look at this. Um, obviously, you know, there's a lot more that the ducks are playing for than just trying to beat Washington and Oregon state. But in terms of kind of the bitter taste of last season, that's the immediate thing that comes to mind is, is the opportunity to, to deal out some revenge to two teams that should be really good. Um, what uh how how would you answer that what what do you see as as the opportunities on the husky side yeah i think for the huskies they have the opportunity now to do something that i can't remember them being able to do for at least 4 5 6 years and that is to steal some of the thunder and some of the hype and to to gain the national attention heading into the season with Michael Penix Jr., I think they've got a legitimate 
Heisman candidate from day one that they should be hyping um, in, you know, in, in the national media. And so if if they can take advantage of that opportunity, if if Michael Penix Jr. can come out firing on all cylinders, if this team can, you know, can can blow away Boise State, can blow away, blow away Tulsa, you know, win convincingly on the road against Michigan State and really build that, you know, that national frenzy of, of attention. That's something that this program hasn't had for a long time. And we know, I mean, o- Oregon has made uh, a, a living out of it, but, you know, that that hype plays with students. It plays with fans. It plays with recruits. And so you want the the, the stadium to be packed and you want the crowd to be loud and you want four-star and five-star guys saying, you know what, I've got to, I've got to schedule a visit to the University of Washington because, you know, that place is hype. And, and that's, I think, something that we have the opportunity to produce because of the guys that are coming back and the expectations that are being set now. And so Husky, Husky media, Husky athletic program, the football program, the fans, I think we've got to go all in on that and really try to make this year as special as we possibly can be. Because truth is, is that next, the year after that, Penix is going to be gone. Probably seven or eight, nine, 10 key offensive uh, players are going to be gone and it'll be a a rebuild. And our ability to rebuild will be really dependent on how well we reload with talent and that's what this year's got to be about. So I think that's the opportunity. Get back to the CFP, win the Pac-12, you know, get Penix to New York at the very least, and let's try to steal some of that hype. I would add add to that is that, then um, this is not to take anything away from um, from the peak of the Chris Peterson era and the, you know, the 2016 team that went to the playoff and everything like that. But uh, there is a little bit of where um, the teams that have risen to the top of the PAC 12 have kind of done it when other teams kind of took their fall. So like Oregon, Chip Kelly's first year coincided with Pete Carroll's last year. So Oregon kind of had the benefit of riding this wave where USC was having to kind of figure themselves out for a couple of years. And then Washington kind of took over the mantle at the end of the Mark Helfrich year, right? Oregon goes four and eight the year that uh, Washington has their, you know, their playoff season. And then they follow that up with a great season and Oregon has Willie Taggart and, you know, and it's just kind of Oregon's in chaos while Washington is thriving. This is kind of this interesting time where Washington is coming in with sky high expectations. Oregon is coming in with high expectations. USC who's only going to be a member of the conference now for what, another year or two, mm-hmm. uh, they're coming in with sky high expectations. Utah's yeah. a time defending conference champ. And so it does feel like whoever kind of comes out of that as the last team standing, it, it, it is going to mean a little more, I think, than doing that in kind of a normal season where you're kind of taking advantage maybe of, of one program having a down year and you kind of get a schedule like there's no hiding this year 
You know, we're all teams are all playing each other. Nobody's nobody's sitting out the schedule. Whereas last year, USC didn't have to play Oregon or Washington, and Washington didn't have to play USC or Utah or anything like that. Like it's all going to be on the table for those mm-hmm. those four programs. And I think what you're talking about is, you know, if if Washington uh, gets through that landmine, you know, that series of landmines and kind of has the kind of special season that you're talking about, I think it it definitely takes kind of Washington's Q rating to a to a different different stratosphere just because they would be doing it against a really loaded Pac-12 schedule, uh, which is not something that we've always been able to say. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Last year's quarterback class for the Pac-12 was one of the best that I can remember in a long time. And then we find out Penix is coming back. Nix is coming back. Kim Rising is coming back. Of course, we knew Caleb Williams had to come back. But, you know, four of the premier quarterback names are coming back with all this hype, with all this attention, with all these expectations, you know, maybe aside from Cam Rising, certainly Knicks, Williams, and Penix could all easily make their way into New York for the Heisman, you know, uh, consideration. And going into the season, as opposed to last year, where we kind of saw that develop, like nobody expected Knicks to be a Heisman contender. Nobody expected Penix to be a Heisman contender, but, but now they do. And so all of that hype is going to create even more attention on a national level, which is something that the PAC 12 has been craving and in desperate need of for the better part of a decade now. So really, really a a tremendous, the word really is opportunity. It's an opportunity to make a mark on a national level and potentially take a step closer for either program, for Washington or Oregon, this could be the year that helps either one of these programs take that step closer to being in the uh, the Clemson and Ohio State and, you know, that maybe not quite Alabama, Georgia level, but still right up there at the top, that level, we could get there if things break the right way. Yeah, absolutely. So that would be the biggest opportunity. What about the biggest questions? Like what, what, if you're going to be tossing and turning, heading into the season at night, what's keeping you up? What's making you go, well, if this doesn't work out, then none of my hopes are going to really come to fruition. Yeah. I think that that rests entirely on the defensive side of the ball with Oregon. And uh, there were, there were signs late in the season, especially uh, the win over Utah and the win over North Carolina in the bowl game uh, that the defense had a capacity to play to a higher level than they played earlier in the season. Uh, But for the most part, Oregon's defensive effort was, um, not their effort, but their performance was was underwhelming. And in a couple cases, specifically the Georgia game and the Washington game, it was 
it was really concerning, you know, and uh, so having an entire off season to focus on that, um, you know, Dan Lanning being uh, a guy that has been around some really good defenses. It'll be interesting to see if he takes a little more of a hands-on approach of kind of crafting the defensive scheme for this upcoming season. Um, they've brought in some big time transfers, seemingly guys that are going to be able to contribute right away at, at all three levels of the defense. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's, that's the question that will define Oregon season. If, if they take a step forward and they're being talked about as one of the best defenses in the Pac-12, you know, they don't have to have like this incredible, they don't have to be like the Georgia Bulldogs of, of last season, you know, and, and kind of have this historically great defense. But like, if they have a defense that's as good as Utah's, right? Like, or a defense as good as Oregon State had last year, uh, then we we really are talking about them having a chance to to win the Pac-12 and and maybe sneak into a playoff berth or something like that. But that's only going to happen if the defense takes a major leap. And if the defense doesn't take a major leap, the offense is probably good enough to still win a lot of games and maybe even kind of kind of back their way into the Pac-12 shoot uh, Pac-12 championship game because they win a couple shootouts against some of these better teams, but um but the ceiling of this team will only be reached if if that defense takes a step forward. And that's a question that we aren't really going to have answered definitively, like I said, until the second half of the season next year. What what would you say for that question, Warren? Well, you know, certainly I would say I'm I'm not surprised that you mentioned the defense. We saw what Michael Penix did to that defense last year. But I'm a little surprised that you didn't mention the offensive line because uh, I know for me that is a, a question for this Washington program going in. We do have to replace the interior of the line. We've got our freshman All-American, uh, Roger Rosengarten, and, uh, you know, all Pac-12, Troy Fautano, uh, at you know, left and right tackle, but replacing the three guys in 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 the interior, um, that's going to be instrumental to can we keep Michael Penix healthy? Can we run the ball to keep teams off of balance? So certainly a question of whether or not these new offensive linemen can continue with the same level of dominance that Jackson Kirkland and uh, Corey Luciano and Henry Bainabalu were able to produce in 2022. But yes, absolutely, of course, the big question uh, has and will continue to be, have we done enough in the defensive backfield with our cornerbacks and our safeties um, and really even our, our, our linebackers to, uh, to, to, to slow things down, to not be a sieve that just allows teams to, to gash us and, and tear us apart on the back end like we saw happen at times during the season. We certainly saw improvement at the end of the year, especially as guys either A, got some additional experience or B, got healthy again. But um, that's going to be the, the major storyline and test going into it. I think the other, you know, kind of uh, question is, what will this team do now that they do have the burden of expectation on them. And we know that 
you know, these are 18, 19, 20, 21 year old kids. They can read their own headlines. They can, they can start listening to the hype. They can start feeling the pressure of it's an, you know, national championship season or bust. And, you know, some players, some teams rise to that occasion. Other teams fall apart. And yeah. we don't know what that team is going to be until, you know, we're sitting here in December of 2023 evaluating the season. So I think those will be the big questions. The talent is there. The skill is there. The experience is there. The coaching is there. Can they put it together and win those big games in those big moments uh, like they have the potential to do? So uh, we talked about big questions. Let's just kind of meld this last little bit together. Yeah. Give, me your, give me your best case scenario and your worst case scenario. And, and you know, let's stay within the realm of reason, you know, so you're not going to go 0 and 11. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Maybe you're going to go, you know, 12 and 0. I don't know. You tell me. But but what's kind of a best case, worst case scenario based on a certain level of non-homer reason? I just, I just want to say real quick you you called me out for not mentioning Oregon's offensive line I did mention that at the top as one of the biggest challenges of the year was replacing the right. offense so okay I, thank you I feel like I touched on that you know I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bypassing the fact that we've got to got to totally rebuild the, that unit but uh, okay no yeah, uh, I just didn't I didn't connect the two sorry uh bet Worst case, I'm going to start worst case scenario, Warren, and I'm going to I'm going to connect the dots here because I I think the worst case scenario is not just an Oregon thing, um, but I think it's a similar thing for Washington and and probably for Utah, and that is, it's the early non conference loss. Like mm -hmm. if you think about last year, Utah was kind of the team that came in carrying the the flag for the Pac-12, and then they lose their opener at Florida. And a Florida team that ended up being not a very good Florida team. I think they were six and six. They got crushed by the Beavers in their bowl game. Like the longer the season went on, the more it was like that was a really bad loss for Utah on the road to start the year in a game where they really could have kind of staked their claim on a national in a national stage. I think looking at these non-conference games where Oregon goes to Texas Tech, who on paper they should beat. And Washington goes to Michigan State, who last year they dominated them at Husky Stadium. And Utah gets Florida at home, but then I think they also have to go to Baylor the very next week, uh, which is just a brutal, brutal way to start that season. Uh, so there's just these little ways. I think, you know, I'm not so much concerned about USC. I'm not concerned about the Beavers because they don't really have a tough uh, non-conference slate. UCLA doesn't play anyone either. Uh, but for those three teams... I, I just am a little bit concerned that we're going to be riding all this hype. We're going to be really excited. Oh, you know, look, there's five Pac-12 teams in the top 25. There's there's four in the top 15 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to get to the end of September and it's going to be like, oh, like none of them feel like they're they're at that level that we thought they were. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So that's that's kind of my my nightmare scenario if i'm kind of collecting it all mm -hmm. you know i think um i think maybe if i'm if i'm just if i'm specific to oregon and i would say what's 
what's kind of worst case scenario? I, I think worst case scenario is the defense doesn't really look that improved. Um, so they really struggle against Penix and they really struggle against Caleb Williams. Um, and I think then that would be combined with maybe the offense just takes a little bit of a step back. You know, Bo Nix throws a couple more interceptions than he did. Like, like he doesn't revert to like the worst of what he was at Auburn, but it's just, he's not quite as, you know, maybe the offensive coordinator doesn't seem to have quite the command that, that Kenny Dillingham had, or there, there's a few questionable, you know, decisions at times that just kind of unwind and, and, it's not hard with either of these schedules to envision like an eight and four season of, of just kind of things, things that just kind of get away from you a little bit. And and you lose this game 31 to 28 and you lose this game, you know, 34 to to 31. And so it's, it's not hard to envision that. And I think with all of the turnover that Oregon has had on the offensive coaching side, combined with kind of the questions lingering around, the defense, yeah, you could talk me into a worst case scenario where all of those things just kind of unwind and and we're sitting there looking at like an Oregon team that's eight and four and is in the other receiving votes category and and it's a pretty dispiriting season. And that's a terrible thought. <laughs> well, especially if you finish the season going one and three. Yeah, and then I have to deal with your quacking it jokes, you know. <laughs> Yeah. And of course, that would have to be part of the worst case scenario for me is if the the Huskies go, you know, uh, what, seven and one and then finish one and three and, you know, end up behind Oregon. But, you know, I think for me, the the worst case scenario is when you look at this schedule, you see a lot of potential trap games. And then you see a lot of really hard games. So, you know, Boise State, that could be a trap game. Michigan State on the road, that could be a trap game. California is always one of those teams that throws us uh, a curveball away at Stanford. I mean, like that should be a breeze, but away at Stanford is no easy feat for the Washington Huskies historically over the last uh, 10, 20 years or so. Um, And then, of course, playing the Cougars at home. That should be a win, but those are trap games. And then you've got the legitimate hard games. You've got Oregon. You've got on the road at USC. You've got at home against Utah. You've got on the road at Oregon State. So, you know, it's going to take an incredible amount of focus, attention to detail and, you know, just emotional maturity from the coaches and the team in order to make it through the difficult games and to stay focused and to play their best ball in the the games that they're expected to win. Um, So I think worst case scenario, certainly there, there could be easily four or so games on the schedule that the Huskies could end up losing um, and, you know, really have a lot of regrets coming out of the season. I would say best case scenario is interestingly, you know, if, if the Huskies go 11 and two against this, you know, against this schedule, it's going to feel on a national level, 
uh, like it was a, a, a major step forward. Um, so, you know, the Huskies could conceivably finish with the same record that they finished with last year. And it still, still feels like a, a real step forward for the program. Obviously, um, the hopes are high. Best case scenario for the Huskies is they beat Oregon. They win the Pac-12. Uh, and, and by winning the Pac-12, they deserve to be in the college football playoffs. And then, you know, case sarah, sarah, you know, whatever happens, happens. But, but you know, we've we've kind of broken back into that stratosphere again you know, the only team to make it to the college football playoffs, um, you know, since those were, you know, were instituted. So I think that's, that's the best case scenario, getting that, that Heisman hope, you know, getting that Heisman hype train going is a part of that. Um, you know, if the Huskies, if the, if, if Michael, if Michael Penix wins the Heisman, that means that we probably have had a historically great season. So all of those things are on the table this year, which is not homerism. It's 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 legitimate legitimate hope that that they're bringing into this season. Um, so the worst case scenario would be an extremely disappointing eight and four type of season. Best case scenario. 11 and 2, 12 and 1, and that national hype really kind of putting some wind in the sails of Kalen DeBoer and this next era of football at University of Washington. Yeah, I think if if I'm if I'm looking best case scenario and I'm kind of looking at these two schedules side by side, the biggest thing that sticks out is. Oregon has to go to Husky Stadium and they have to go to Rice-Eccles Stadium to play Utah, which is probably the toughest ask if you're talking about the two games that you least want to have on the road. Yeah. Uh, they've got two. Now, they've got USC at home and they'll get the Beavers at home, but but to have road games at Washington and at Utah um, is a really tough ask. They get the bye before the Husky game. Um, but then it's Huskies home against the Cougars at Utah. So it's, it's really hard for me to envision them getting through that stretch without at least taking one loss, just because of the fact that they're both on the road. Um, and I would think that both Washington and Utah would be slight favorites at home. Uh, if, if I'm comparing that to the Huskies, I think your schedule, you get the Ducks at home then you get a couple, you know, of of those kind of lesser opponents, and then USC on the road. But USC's home crowd isn't like this, you know. That's not necessarily like an environment that you're like nervous to play in, um, in the same way. And then you get Utah at home. So I would think Oregon and Utah would be the two places you would least want to have to travel to, uh, recognizing that you did win at Oregon last year. But you know, it's not something you take for granted. So no. I think. To Oregon and Utah both at home and have USC to be the one of those that you have to travel to. I think that works out to Washington's favor, but I think the difference for Washington is to have that back-to-back -back of USC and then Utah immediately following 
Um, it is not easy to win games of that caliber in consecutive weeks. I mean, it's just, it's just not. Uh, and then to have the Beavers kind of lingering mm. as the third game in that stretch, and then you have your rivalry game with the with the Cougars. I mean, it's it's just a really really brutal November slate uh, for the Huskies. But I think having those home games against Oregon and Utah, I think to me gives gives the Huskies a little higher ceiling as far as what uh, what they might be capable of in terms of a final record. Absolutely. And and Mark, I'm and I just clicked on to look at the the Beavers schedule this year. So um I'm looking at their schedule. To me, the only game that I would say is, you know, presents a a, a monumental challenge for them is playing Utah in September on a Friday night, but mm-hmm. they get to play them at home. Mm-hmm. So you know, I mean, their non-conference schedule is really not anything to to be concerned about. They do play, you know, the Cougars uh, at Martin Stadium early in the season, but then they've got uh, UCLA. Uh, they at home. They've got uh, a bye week, and then Arizona, Colorado on the road, Stanford at home. So they could very easily come into the final two games of the season with Washington and Oregon to wrap things up with one or zero losses, which I mean, I, I don't, they're not coming into that game. They're not coming in with a 10 and zero record. No. I'm not saying that they will, but I'm saying that if you look at the schedule, there's nothing on the schedule that says, Oh man, that's a loss. That's a loss. That's a loss. I, you know, it, they're going to lose because it's the pac 12, but yeah. I don't, think that you look at it and you go oh they're overmatched in half of these games 100 percent. it's it they're probably uh they're probably an underdog in one of those first 10 right now if you were to bet which is utah right yeah the utah they have utah at home on a friday night at home on a friday night so that's best possible scenario there they get ucla at home they get the huskies at home uh so outside of the road game at oregon it's a really, really favorable schedule. They don't have to play USC. Um, they don't have their toughest non-conference game is going to be San Diego State, and they get them at home. Uh, but I also just feel like it's the Beavers, and you know they they'll find a way to lose in Pullman, or or they'll lose, you know, in Tucson, or or it, I I just I I do not foresee a ten and zero Beaver start. You know, like it would not surprise me at all if they upset Utah, but I I think they make up for that either before or after. You may be right, but I think my point is, is that they could be coming into those last two games of the season feeling like they have a legitimate chance of winning the Pac-12. Yeah, that that could be on the table. I think I think you're right, because even if they go like, let's say they beat Utah and they start off the year like eight and two. Yeah. Then very much in the conversation playing at home against the Huskies where it's like, okay, if they beat the Huskies, then they're, then they're playing the ducks and you know, it's all on the table. Like, so yeah, no, totally. I'm totally with you. I'm not trying to be a beaver hater here, but I (laughs) feel like, uh, I feel like the beavers are the team that um, has kind of the least margin for error in some of these mid-tier games like against the the lower half of the conference 
I yeah. feel like they have the least margin for error unless DJU as a quarterback really takes a leap forward and and they have a little more explosive offense. But because they win games by kind of grinding teams out with the defense and the running game, they're just they're susceptible to like the random 17 to 14 loss to Cal that just feels like a gut punch, but it's just kind of that happens in college football sometimes if you don't have an offense that's just capable of kind of scoring 40 every game, regardless of your opponent. All right. Well, let's wrap it up. Uh, good episode. Good to be back. Thanks for everybody for listening. Um, we want to continue to just remind everybody that uh, the, the Huskies are good this year. The Ducks are good this year. And those Beavers continue to be pesky. <laughs> that's right uh that's a <laughs> all right well let's wrap it up for all my dog fans out there go dogs and for all my duck fans go ducks okay we'll catch you guys